let's let's jump in and talk about the story of the book of Abraham. And, and I like to usually start out by asking why in the world would we care? Why would we care uh, to know about uh, the the story of Abraham and what's in his life? Uh, we I've often talked about the history of how we got the book. That's lectures I've done before. We're not going to talk about that this week. Um, we, this week we're going to talk about the history that's contained in the book and the doctrine. So we'll do history the first two days, doctrine the last day. Um, and I, I just have to say, I think there's a, a, a real power in that if we can make the scriptures real. This is something that I'm just passionate about. I find that if we can make the scriptures become more real, if we can make the people in them become real to us, then we can relate to them so much better, and then we have an added power to draw and to apply what they're going through into our lives. Um, I, I'm passionate enough about it. I have a podcast called The Scriptures Are Real. Uh, this is one of the emphases in my classes that I teach here at BYU. Uh, I, I write about this. Uh, I just feel like if we can make today, if we can make Abraham and Sarah and their lives become more real to us, or if we can maybe picture where they were and some of the things they were going through, then there are some lessons that we can learn from that text that we don't learn if they seem like they're just kind of an old story that uh, really, in, in the scriptures, often the people don't seem quite real to us. It's one of the things I love about the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament, more than any other book of scripture, uh, gives, and, and the book of Abraham really fits in with that Old Testament style of writing. It gives us uh, a, a full picture of the people. We get just such little glimpses. Like, I mean, what do you really know about Paul? Right? And we know a bit about Nephi, uh, but, but so many of the people in the scriptures, we don't know a lot about what's going on. But, but with Abraham, we know about his family and his heartaches and his sorrows and the things he did well, the things he struggled with. Uh, and so on, and uh, that that just really, because my life is like that, uh, it allows me to draw that power into my life now. So that's our aim for today, is to understand a little bit more about Abraham and what his life was like, um, and see what we can uh, get from that. So, we're going to start out by just asking, where did he live? Uh, the scriptures, both the Bible and the book of Abraham, tell us he was in Ur of the Chaldees. But the question is, where was that? And to some degree, we have to ask, who were the Chaldees? Or Chaldeans is the other way that we hear it. And this is a trickier question than you might think. Uh, so typically, you can see, oh, I, let me see if I can get this. So you can see my, is that showing up on the screen? Yes, okay. You can see it says Chaldea right here, okay? And that's typically where we'd say, the Chaldeans are, and in fact, there's a city named Ur right there. And so when we say Ur of the Chaldees or Chaldees, that's that's typically where we think of, and that's where most biblical scholars and most uh, students of the Bible of any sort would put uh, Ur and Chaldea. But it's not as simple as most people think it is. Uh, so let's let's look at it a little bit more. For a long time, no one was sure where Ur was, and there was a fellow who started uh, excavating who, uh, in this area, uh, who felt like he learned the name, the name of this place was Ur. It turns out there are a number of places named Ur, or either Ur something, Ur dash something. Um, and uh, he felt like this might be the place. Now, I have to tell you, I, I, I didn't mention this when I was talking about myself. I'm the director of an excavation. 
in Egypt. Uh, and this is what directors of excavations always need. They need money. Um, they, that's, that's what we need all the time. It just costs. And so uh, you're always trying to figure out how can we get more money. And this was true in uh, Sir Willie's day. This is true today. I know lots of archaeologists today who I think really stretch the facts, uh, making a, a case for the site they're excavating being some biblical site because you can get a lot more money if you uh, if people feel like, okay, well, I'm helping to contribute to our understanding of the Bible. You can just raise a whole lot more money. So he jumped on this being Ur of uh, uh, the Ur that Abraham was from. And it was in that general area of what we usually think of as Chaldea. Uh, and it helped that he found this little thing, which he interpreted as the ram in the thicket. Uh, now, that's, that's interesting, except that that story took place long after Abraham left Ur. And I don't know that they would have ever heard of that story in Ur. So I don't know why they had a ram in the thicket. But anyway, uh, but it did help him raise a lot of money. And he was able to do a lot of great excavation there, which I'm happy about. Um, but I'm not particularly convinced that that's the place. Uh, it just in and of itself, and then I'll show you some other reasons why with the added information from the Book of Abraham, I'm even less convinced. But, but even without that, I, I wasn't particularly convinced. But that's where most people would, would place it. But it's partially because they don't ask where the, the Chaldees and the Chaldeans were originally from. Because it turns out we can document that they arrived in that area fairly late. Well, okay, I say fairly late. Not late for us because it was like, 1500 BC, but uh, Abraham's about 2000 BC. So that's not where they were in Abraham's day. Uh, and it's very difficult to trace where they were because they were nomadic until they got down into that area and they, they encountered some people that were sedentary, that were urban, and they moved in there and then basically took over the place by mostly by just having a greater population. Um, and it's hard to trace nomads. And really the easiest, about the only way to do this, is to, to trace them linguistically. Where do we see their language showing up? Where do we find text? We can find text here and there, or we find people who seem to, their language seem to be influenced by uh, someone else's language and so on. And so there's a scholar who has uh, done some research on this, and he, he's traced them uh, so that if we were to go, uh, this is where they end up, but he traced them initially, find some evidence from here and earlier than that some here and eventually came back to thinking that this area is probably their origin this is probably their homeland that area that's on the border of uh, Turkey and Syria today all right so this is like where a lot of the Kurds are today and there's some border tension and all sorts of crazy stuff going on there so it's in that area that uh, he traced to be their ancient origin so I would guess Uh, you know, I have not calculated the distance, but let's just say you've got um, part of Turkey, all of Syria, and then most of Iraq in between. So uh, you're looking at, at uh, I guess, about 1,600, 1,700 miles. Um, but uh, that's really a very, very rough guess. Uh, somebody just get on Google Maps while you're here, and someone will tell us the answer in a second. So, um, in any case, yeah, just look at the, the distance between the border with Turkey and uh, the southern border of Iraq, and you'll basically get it. Uh, anyway, the, uh, that's, that's the general area. And so I would guess that that's probably where we should look for an Ur of Abraham's day. Uh, and if we do some looking, we, we find some interesting evidence that might point us that way. 
this is from Abraham chapter 1, verse 10, uh, where he's talking about child sacrifice. But he talks about the thank offering of a child that the priest of Pharaoh offered upon the altar, which stood by the hill called Potiphar's Hill, at the head of the plain of Olishan. So there are a number of clues in here. One, it's in a place where there is a lot of Egyptian influence. Okay, so there really is an Egyptian influence in that southern Ur that we were just looking at. There's not much Egyptian influence there. And I'll tell you that there are critics of the book of Abraham who say, see, Joseph Smith didn't know what he was talking about. He just made this up because there's no Egyptian influence down in that Ur. And that's all based on it being an Ur that it probably isn't. Um, because, and, and I'll say that this uh, research by the scholar who did this linguistic uh, uh, tracing of the Chaldeans, while it's really good research, just hasn't gotten a lot of circulation. It's not particularly well known. Um, in any case, so we want to look for a place that has some Egyptian influence. Second, we could look for a place called Potiphar's Hill. We've not found any information about any place called Potiphar's Hill. And we can look at a place that would be called Oleshen. And it turns out we have found some ancient texts that, that talk about a place that we, we, is probably Oleshen. Uh, it's written in Akkadian, which has the craziest writing script ever called Cuneiform, but you can see it right there, Ulisim. Uh, Sin is how it's written there. Uh, and O's and U's shift in languages frequently. That's a really common uh, uh, shift. And so do uh, the S and the SH sound. In fact, there's a story in the Bible where uh, they're trying to figure out uh, people from one tribe aren't trusting people from another tribe, and they're trying to figure out who's really from which tribe. And so they, they're at a place where you ford the river. They ask people to say Shibboleth, but people from the tribe that they're looking for can only say Sibboleth because they don't say Shuk. And just and that's in this, it's the same language in uh, you know, all They're all Israelite tribes. And just within there, within the dialect, there's then a to Shuk, or a Shuk to Suk, Shit, right? And you'll find that all over the place. It's a really common linguistic shit. So Ole Shen and Juli Sin are almost certainly the same name. And interestingly, we found this name written in a number of texts, uh, and they are from the time period of Abraham. And they're in lists of towns where they're in travel lists where you, either because of uh, trade, economic trade, or military campaigns, you're saying we went here, 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 and here. And we know where a number of those places are, and since they're going in an order, you can get at least the general area where Olishem or Ulisunusim would be. You can't know for sure where it is, but we can get the general area. And it would be right in this area, which happens to be the same place where we know the Chaldeans were from uh, at, at, by this linguistic uh, tracing, right? So that's a good candidate for us to start to look for a place over, and there are actually a number of cities there we don't know exactly where uh, some of them are, but there, there's, there are a couple of cities that are Ur something. Uh, so Ur would be in their name. Uh, this idea has caught on enough that there is actually um, a Turkish archaeologist, going back to our people looking for money for their digs, there's a Turkish archaeologist who is, uh, uh, and he's Muslim, who is uh, excavating in a particular town, and he heard uh, or read some things that uh, a colleague of mine here at BYU and Egyptologist named John Gee was writing, where he said, oh, this could be this Ulusum might be Olishan, which means it might be the place Abraham is from. And of course, Abraham is a very popular figure among Muslims. And so this archaeologist started arguing that the city that he was excavating was Ulusum or Olishan. Uh, and that it was the hometown of Abraham, and it helped him raise a lot of money because Muslims like Abraham, so they gave him money and so on, right? But anyway, I don't know if it is or not. There's no way for us to tell, but it's a candidate. It's a possibility that that is the place where Abraham is from. 
In any case, it would, it would seem he's from somewhere in this area. Uh, now, remember that I said one of the things we should look for is whether uh, there is Egyptian influence there. So this is a map I created. I didn't make the map, I made the red dots. Um, where I could document uh, that there was some kind of Egyptian influence there. Just looking at the architecture or the texts or, or objects and artifacts that were Egyptian. And so you can see that there's a, a, a bit of Egyptian influence uh, in these areas. And we'll talk about, well, let's talk about it now. The Egyptians, uh, you probably know, are down in this area, right? Uh, this is where they're from. Uh, this is in the Sinai. They have a bit of contact there because that's where they mine silver and turquoise. Um, but all of these are in places that are strategic for military and economic trade routes. Uh, they didn't try and take over during this time period. So I'm not talking about just ever. I'm talking about during the, the time of Abraham. Um, they didn't try and take over the entire area. It wasn't an empire. It was a, a place where they controlled cities and areas that were strategically important. Uh, and that's, we'll come back to that in a minute. So you can see the, these areas of influence. Um, and again, this is our candidate for the area that Abraham is in. And so it, it fits very well. We would expect to find some Egyptian influence there. And so I'm fairly convinced, we don't know for sure, but I'm fairly convinced that this is the area that Abraham is from. And it, it makes a lot more sense as we get to other parts of the story. All right, so uh, let's, let's talk about the idea of uh, Abraham being nearly sacrificed, right? So that's depicted here in facsimile one. This is the original, by the way, this is the papyrus uh, drawing, which facsimile one is a facsimile of. And this is a modern depiction of it. Uh, and you get this story of Abraham being sacrificed, and uh, that there's some Egyptian involvement in that. Now that's interesting. When I was in graduate school, uh, and, and, well, it's an undergrad in graduate school. Everyone would say, well, the Egyptians weren't involved in being sacrificed at all. And that didn't particularly worry me because the story that's in Abraham chapter 1 tells us that uh, what was being practiced was a mixture of Canaanite and Egyptian religion practices, right? But, and, and we know the Canaanites that were engaged in human sacrifice, uh, but all Egyptologists said the Egyptians weren't involved in human sacrifice. Uh, and so I just said, okay, they, they weren't, um, that's fine, it must be Canaanite influence, but it really kind of seems like maybe there was some Egyptian influence there. And so we started asking this question, did Egyptians ever engage in human sacrifice? And I was, I was teaching, no, they, they didn't. And then I had a friend of mine who came and showed me some evidence in graduate school that perhaps they, they were, and we'll look at that evidence in, in just a minute. Uh, and that made me start to investigate this, because I hate teaching stuff that's wrong, although we do it all the time. But most of the education will find out five years later, oh, wow, I've been wrong that all this time. But anyway, um, that's because we keep learning more, right? That's a blessing, but it's also a curse. So anyway, um, uh, I decided I was going to start to investigate that, and not just human sacrifice, but the, just the larger context. Why would they have religious killing at all? And... Um, that became a topic of my dissertation and then a book that I wrote. Um, so let's look at, we won't take you through uh, all 400 pages of the dissertation, but we'll, we'll look at at least a couple of key things from Abraham's day. I looked at it for a much larger period of time. Uh, this is from a temple of St. Eusebius the First of Todd, where uh, St. Eusebius the First found some people who had been uh, desecrating and, and really taking stuff from the temple for themselves. And he says he, he took the knife and was applied to the children of the enemy as sacrifices. Right, the enemy or the desecrators of the temple. 
So we want to look at that word sacrifice. This is the Hebrew, or the Egyptian word is samayu. And in Egyptian, you have, uh, uh, after many words, what's called a determinative. It's a little character placed after it. It doesn't have a pronunciation value. It just tells you what kind of a word it is. So for example, if you have the word bear, you and I would know. Is that meaning we carry something, or is it the animal? Or they would have a determinative, like of an arm. That means it's an action, so that's the carry. Or of an animal, that means it's the, the end there, right? Uh, in this case, it's the determinative is uh, a, head, a, a cow that's head has been cut off. And when that determinative is, is used, it, this word always means a ritual sacrifice. That's what it means. And so, St. Eusebius was saying that he sacrificed people right during the same time period as Abraham. Um, we found evidence this is outside of Egypt, uh, just as the story of Abraham takes place outside of Egypt. This is the one that my friend told me about, that at Mergissa, um, evidence for what's known as an execration rite. Now, we're not going to talk about that very much today, but we'll talk about it a lot tomorrow because the priest that owned Vex only one that uh, was a priest who did execration rites. But let's just give you a simple definition of it now. It's a rite you do to try and get rid of anything bad that you want to get rid of, mostly people. All right, so, uh, and, and so at uh, this site, uh, they found remnants of melted wax figures. Uh, about 200 broken uh, red vases that had names written on them. This is all typical of execration rights stuff. We'll show you lots of examples tomorrow. Over 400 unobscribed red vases. Uh, nearly 350 mud figurines. Um, four limestone figures. And a human skull buried along with all of these other figures. Uh, and, uh, and, and next to it, a ritual flint knife. The kind of knife that you would use when you kill something ritually. Uh, and so that has been largely accepted as evidence that they actually used a human here as a part of their execration rite. So as I said, this got me into it and I found lots and lots of evidence for uh, human sacrifice. We uh, typically would call it a ritual slaying rather than human sacrifice because I think it is different than the kind of thing say you find the Aztecs doing or something along those lines. So the human sacrifice is a loaded term that we may not uh, all the baggage that comes with it may not accurately describe what's happening in Egypt, but it's, uh, so I say ritual slaying when I write academically, but no one knows what I'm talking about, and no one will be but when I say ritual slaying, what are you talking about? So anyway, um, these are all of the uh, places where I have really, really clear cases of ritual slaying. Um, this is Abraham's life right about here. But you can see, and if I put up all the fairly clear cases, it would just be red arrows all the way across. Um, that, that time spectrum. And so it, it really became fairly clear. At, at, at this point, I would say my Egyptological colleagues, uh, with rare exception, have all become convinced that there was a uh, human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. And in particular, uh, human sacrifice was done, there were some regular programs, but, but what we really know about is that it was done when someone was disturbing the religious order. All right, so let me talk about that just a, a little bit. So here's the, this is the book that I wrote on it. Um, and with my colleague, John Dee, we wrote an article where we took all that information and, and showed how perfectly it applied to Abraham's situation. Um, and then interestingly, uh, the, the person who first wrote about uh, those finds of Ferguson and, and the human sacrifice there, uh, he was paid by some uh, anti-Mormons to write against the church. And so he was writing saying, well, Dr. Mielsen's made a good case for human sacrifice, but I don't know that it really applies in this way. And I thought, wow, I thought that was just so intuitive. Maybe I need to write an article or recollect the thoughts a little bit better. Um, and so I talked with my friend John Dean and I said, uh, we should, 
I should write and publish an article in there. Where would be a good place? What would be the best place to publish it? As we talked, we thought, well, this one journal uh, would be the perfect place for it, but it turns out that that was a journal that was published by the institution that uh, the, the professor had said that he was being paid by anti-Mormons to write against us. He, he kind of helped run that institution. We thought, oh, that may not work very well to try to publish it there. Let's let's think about it. So we, we said, let's let's we'll, we'll think about it for a while, pray about it for a while, and see what happens. And about a week and a half later, that journal called me and they said, hey, we're doing a special uh, issue on uh, violence in the ancient world, and we'd like you to write a piece for it. Uh, would you write a piece? And they had another guest editor for this. So uh, sure enough, we ended up uh, ended up. Uh, Publishing in there just seemed like that got dropped in our lap uh, fortuitously is probably not the right word for it. But um, in any case, uh, where we collected the, the, uh, connected the dots and showed that what happens is if someone is disturbing the ritual order of things, like let's say, for example, that someone in a place where they are doing sacrifices to idols, someone is saying you shouldn't worship these idols, which is, by the way, what Abraham was doing, that then the only correct response for that was to sacrifice that person. We won't get into all of the ritual reasons why, but that there are some good ritual and religious reasons why that would be the case. And so this seems like it was the perfect fit for this. In fact, there are lots of interesting stories. Okay, uh, my, I usually have a clock on this uh, come up, but it's not coming up now. But I, I, okay, we've got enough time to tell this story. Um, we get done at 12 o'clock. Okay. Um, one of the things that I love is when my, my academic research and my, my scripture study can come together to, to form a fuller picture for each of them. Um, and there was one thing I was puzzled by. There are a lot of ancient traditions, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim traditions, about Abraham being nearly sacrificed while he was living in Ur of the Chaldees and his father being involved in that. It's not in the Bible at all, by the way. Not in the Bible even a little bit, but there are a lot of ancient traditions about it. And a number of these traditions uh, hold that he was going to be burned. Uh, now, I'll, I'll tell you that, uh, my favorite one of these, and, and there are several that are similar to this, but this is my favorite one. Uh, and I have no idea if this story is true or not, but I like it so much. I just choose to think it's true. But anyway, it's probably not, but I, it's fun to think it is. Uh, in this story, um, Abraham went to this cult center where they had a lot of uh, statues of different idols. After he'd been preaching against idolatry for a while, no one was listening to him. In this story, he went to this cult center, and he broke down all of the idols but one, and then he put a stick in, uh, in the hands of that, that idol. And uh, everyone came back uh, at some point, and they said, what, what happened here? Uh, who broke down all these idols? And Abraham said, oh, that, that idol. I don't think he do it. He, he didn't do it. You must have done it. And Abraham said, if you don't think he could do it, why are you worshiping him? Right? And that made him so bad they decided that they would burn him to death. Um, and then he was rescued by an angel. And I thought, that's really interesting because we have a lot of traditions about him being sacrificed, which I think are based on this kernel of truth. It's a true story, right? That he wasn't really sacrificed. But they all have this burning motif. And so many of them, I thought, you can't just dismiss that. That burning, there must be something to that. But... The, in the book of Abraham, it looks like he's got a knife, right, and, and, uh, and so on. Um, looks like he's going to be killed with a knife. And I thought, That's, how do I reconcile those? And then as I was studying ancient Egyptian sacrifice, it dawned on me, uh, because they talked about that when they would uh, kill people, they would do it just like they did with animals, which is that you kill them first with a knife, and then you burn them. And I thought, oh, yeah, of course, that's how, they, that's how Israelites did it, that's how everyone else did it. 
Uh, and so I was able to take that with the Abraham story, the story of the book of Abraham, these ancient traditions, and I think when we put them all together, we, we have a pretty, uh, a more full picture of what was probably about to happen to Abraham. There's a lot of speculation there as well, but, but something like that is probably what was about to happen to Abraham. And his father was involved in this. His father was so uh, into this idolatry that, that he was part of Abraham being nearly sacrificed. I cannot imagine how traumatic that is. To be nearly killed and to have your father be part of you being attempted to kill you. Uh, and I think it adds an extra layer of meaning when Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, because Abraham knows what Isaac's going to feel. Uh, I think it's all the harder. And those kinds of things just make those scriptural stories become more real for me. Um, in any case, so you can see uh, our depiction here on the papyrus. And you remember that also in the explanation Joseph Smith gives us, he talks about these figures underneath the altar. Um, and he talks about them being these various Canaanite gods. Now, these look like traditionally what we would call the four sons of Horus, and, and there's some other interesting things with that when we get into the facsimiles. But uh, again, it's really common in the ancient world for you to, to mix two gods together. If you say, uh, I, I'm from Egypt and I have a strong God, and you're from Canaan and you have a strong God, they're probably the same God, you often say. Some things seem a little different, but they work together. But they do this kind of thing all the time. We'll see some examples of that tomorrow when we look at the owner of this papyrus. Right, I'll give you a, here's a preview tomorrow. This is his name right here, so we'll talk about it tomorrow. But anyway, um, and so it's quite likely that these are Canaanite gods that had been intermingled with Egyptian gods, but uh, interestingly, as Joseph gives us the names for these four gods, uh, we have found ancient examples of those names as gods for all four of them. For two of them, we don't know very much at all about them, we just found the name. For one, we know a little bit more, and then for one, we know a bit. Uh, and that's this particular god here, Elkanah. Uh, and so then we can say, well, where was he worshipped? And interestingly, Elkanah is worshipped uh, in this area. So uh, it again overlaps with exactly where it seems is the likely place for Abraham to have come from. Uh, so again, I mean, my testimony is not based on whether Ur is in this northern position or not. This is just my mind wanting to understand what happened and then understand the scriptures better. But it's a fairly convincing case to me that that's where he's from. So. That makes this part of the story make a lot more sense, because if you are Abraham and you're fleeing because the Egyptians are wanting to kill you, uh, why would you go all the way from here, where there's no Egyptian influence, all the way up to here, where you're closer to Egyptian influence? Not that Egyptian influence, but a lot closer, right? It makes much more sense if you go from here, where there is Egyptian influence, to just across the river where there isn't Egyptian influence, and you go to Iran. And it's a, a much shorter journey, right? You're just going to the next big town when you can escape Egyptian influence. And so again, it just makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. I think that this is the story and this is uh, where Abraham is going. Uh, so he, he goes to Hebron. His father has become somewhat converted to worshiping Jehovah after Abraham is miraculously spared by the angel and the priest of Pharaoh is slain. Uh, and they're upset about that and so on. Um, and so he's converted, and they live there for a while. Abraham gets married and all sorts of good stuff. And then a famine comes. And uh, Abraham has uh, some relatives that die by that famine. And God tells Abraham it's time for him to leave, that he's going to take him to a promised land. 
a land that is new to him where he'll be a foreigner, but a, a land that his seed will inherit, his descendants will inherit. And so Abraham will leave. Unfortunately for Abraham, and I want you to kind of think about the kind of just family dynamics and the yo-yoing that goes on and the, the tensions of this family dynamics. Abraham is going to leave, and uh, he's had a number of family members, that it seems, that started to believe, but by this point, they've stopped believing. And when he leaves, it's only his nephew Lot that's going to come with him. It seems some other people have come, but from his family, Lot's the only one that's mentioned, and we know his father has turned back to idolatry and is going to stay. And Abraham knows he's leaving his father, uh, and that his father, without him, there's very little chance his father will ever stop worshiping idols, but because God has commanded him to, he will leave his family behind and go to a new place where he'll be a foreigner. Now, it seems like he took a number of people with him. In fact, uh, let's just read, because we should read from the scriptures at least once while we're together here. Um, I'm going to go to Abraham chapter 2. And uh, there's some beautiful verses in Abraham chapter 2 that we're going to read from. We're going to look at verse 15. <coughs> And I took Sarai, whom I took to wife, and I was in Ur, in Chaldea, and Lot, my brother's son, and all our substance that we had gathered, and the souls that we had won in Haran, and came forth in the way to the land of Canaan, and dwelt in the tents as we came on our way. Um, that phrase, the souls that we had won, uh, I mean, some people have argued there's a, it's a similar phrase, but not quite that way. Um, in the Bible, some people have argued that that is uh, his servants. And some of them may have been servants, but, but this phrase, the souls that we had won, makes it sound more like these are people that he's converted. And in fact, in a number of ancient translations, as they translated into Aramaic or something along those lines, that's the way they say it. That Abraham has converted and he has this large congregation that is moving with him as he, as he goes into Haran. And then let's read the next verse, and uh, it's just quote if we could try and explore what it means, but we don't really know, but we could come up with lots of ideas, but I'll just read it. Um, Therefore, eternity was our covering and our rock and our salvation as we journeyed from Haran by the way of Jershon to come to the land of Canaan. Just a beautiful phrase, eternity being their covering and their rock and their salvation. So they come down into the land of Canaan. They stop at Jershon. We don't know exactly where that is. There's a decent candidate in the modern-day town of Jerash. There's a tradition that Abraham was there. That's in the, the route that you would expect that he takes, but we don't know exactly where it is. I've just placed it for sake of convenience where Jerash is here on the map. But uh, this is a, a map I made where, again, I didn't make the map just to draw the lines, uh, where he, we can trace where he came down. And all, we know he crossed somewhere around here. In fact, we're going to assume he crossed the same places that uh, his, son, his grandson Jacob would have later, and we know a little bit more about his journey. And he comes to Shechem and then uh, Bethel and Salem and Hebron and, and down to Beersheba. And he builds altars in each of those places. In all of those places, he builds altars and sacrifices to the Lord, continuing to practice his religion and in a way sacralizing the land, making it uh, his and Jehovah's by sacrificing to Jehovah as he goes through uh, all of these places. So, again, there's a family. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. This isn't an idea that I can claim on my own. Uh, my, my dear friend, Phil Allred, Dr. Phil Allred, who teaches at BYU-Idaho, uh, when he was a guest on my podcast, uh, walked me through this, and I thought it was so powerful to think about this. What would, what would your thought be if God tells you, I'm, going to, I'm sending you to a promised land that you and your seed will inherit, and you get there, and it's a family? 
and, and you're starting and other people are starting there. Wouldn't you have some questions about that? Say, well, God, wait a minute. Why did you promise me this land? I'm here. I didn't want to come here. I'm here because you asked me to come here, and it's not good, and I don't know how to live here. It doesn't seem like you're coming through for me. I think that most of us would naturally have those questions. And sometimes our life is that way, where we're inspired to do something and we're doing it, and it feels like the wheels fell off the bus while we were doing it. Uh, and we have to ask, am I doing the right thing? Do I really understand that inspiration correctly? Uh, am, am I supposed to be? And sometimes it is, God told you to do this so that you just get here and then he can tell you to do something else. Uh, but th those are questions that we all will have to wrestle with in one way or another. And it's, it's, uh, it can give us some inspiration to see uh, how Abraham deals with it. In fact, let's, let's keep reading here in Abraham chapter 2, um, after he builds altars. Um, and then uh, verse 21 of chapter 2. And I, Abraham, journeyed, going on still toward the south. So that's coming, uh, we're going to go back. That's coming down here towards Beersheba, which is fairly far south. Um, and it's showing up, yeah, okay, I want to make sure sometimes it doesn't show up all the way on the screen. So he says, I journeyed still toward the south, and there was a continuation of the famine in the land. And I, Abraham, concluded to go down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine became very grievous. Right, so he's not able to survive. And finally, he says, you know, I think I better go to Egypt. God's told him to go to the promised land. My guess would be somewhere in there is a lot of praying. What am I supposed to do now? We're starving. I don't know what to do. And apparently God isn't answering it. And so he uses his best judgment, and he says, well, it seems like I just need to go down to Egypt. Once he starts, God's going to confirm it and tell him, yes, and this is how you need to do it. Here's some precautions you need to take and so on. But uh, I think Abraham had some real uh, issues to wrestle through and finally just came up with his own best plan as he was trying to figure out how to take care of his family and those who were with him. So they decide to go down into Egypt, right? So. Uh, we're going to come along this way. There's Hebron and Josheba, and then they probably, this is where the trade house typically went, so they probably went that way. Giza and coming down into Egypt to a place uh, called the so we'll talk about it in a minute. But first I want to talk about um, this uh, story with Sarah. This is a, a picture that they're painting at the beginning of the, uh, my, my podcast and this painting are, are both in my office. They're by Stuart Heimdall. Uh, who did them, and a third one that someone else took that painting before I could get it. But anyway, uh, uh, he did three about the life of Abraham as uh, his uh, MFA his, uh, here at BYU. And then he went on to become famous by doing all of the artwork for Conan the Barbarian. Uh, but a great member of the church has uh, since passed away, but uh, gave me permission to use these pictures. He said, BYU's done so much for me, use these pictures anyway that they're helpful for you. So, uh, we're using these paintings by permission, but I didn't get a very good picture of this one. I just took this with my phone this morning, but uh, so you can see the, the light reflecting on it. But anyway, this is supposed to depict Abraham when he first tells Sarah that um, she's going to need to say she's his sister. Right now, in the Bible, it says that Abraham came up with that idea. In the uh, book of Abraham, it makes it clear God told Abraham, Pharaoh is going to want to kill you. Sarah is so beautiful. That Pharaoh's going to want to kill you. Yes, he's from among the Canaanites as well. He's going to want to kill you so he can marry your wife. So tell uh, Pharaoh that he's your sister. Now, she is 
um, either a half-sister or a, a niece or a cousin or something along those lines, all of which they didn't have words for niece and cousin in Hebrew, Aramaic, or I mean Egyptian, any of those. You just, if it's, if it's a female or male um, relative that is older than you, then it's a, a father or mother. They don't have uncles and aunts and so on. Younger than you, a uh, daughter or son, around the same generation as you, sister or brother. That's just how you refer to them, all right? So one way or the other, she's a sister, probably a half-sister. Um, and so that's not uh, telling an untruth, it's just not telling the whole truth, right? Um, and so uh, I want you to think about this, and I think we often don't put ourselves in Sarah's shoes. I want you to think about this from Sarah's point of view. Where Abraham comes to you and he says, um, you're so beautiful, they're going to want to kill me so that they can marry you. And so God wants you to say that you're my sister so they won't kill me. You don't, if that's all you said, there's an unfinished part of that sentence, right? And it's, well, that means Pharaoh will marry you. He just won't kill me to make it happen. And, and that's what I like about this painting, because you can see, Sarah, this is not happy news. You think about what Sarah agrees to do by saying, okay, I'll do what God says, I'll follow you down there, and I'll say I'm your sister. Uh, we talked about Abraham going for an Abrahamic sacrifice, where he shows that he's willing to give up everything that is most important to him, if that's what God asks. Sarah's doing that here. If she marries Pharaoh, and she does, she doesn't know that Pharaoh's going to give her back, because God smites him, but anyway, or at least that's what the tradition is, that God does bad things to Pharaoh. Um, what she has to think through is that she's going to marry Pharaoh. She will no longer be with her husband, whom she loves, with any family members or friends that she knows and loves. She'll be taken into a, a different country, different language, different customs, be made to be the husband of a man she doesn't know and doesn't love and one of many wives in a situation she's not familiar with at all. She has to give up everything that she knows and loves to be put in a situation she will not like. And she says, yes, if that's what God asks of me, I will do it. Like Abraham, fortunately, she doesn't have to go fully through with it. But I think we don't give Sarah enough credit for the Abrahamic sacrifice she makes, even before Abraham makes his Abrahamic sacrifice. And I think it's worth giving her that credit. Okay. We still have some time. So now Abraham is going to come and teach Pharaoh, right? That's what he's commanded to do uh, in chapter 3. Uh, God shows him a vision of astronomy, and he says, I'm telling you these things, so you can teach it to the Egyptians. We're going to talk in, uh, on Friday about the, the spiritual lessons and theology we can get from that. But we have to ask ourselves, what Pharaoh is he teaching? Uh, and, and we can't really answer that, but we can make some decent guesses. So, uh, let's do a little bit of Egyptian history. I know that's where you really came here today, was to do Egyptian history. Because it, I just love it. So, uh, during most of Abraham, well, during at least part of Abraham's life, Egypt is a, a strong, unified country, with all of Egypt being ruled by one ruler. But, and we don't know exactly when Abraham lived, we just had some round figures, but somewhere during his lifetime, Egypt starts to fragment. That centralized government loses its power, and you get a bunch of different uh, parts of Egypt that kind of break away and, and declare themselves Egypt, and have someone in that country that calls himself Pharaoh, and they rule as king of Egypt, even though it's only over a small part of, of Egypt. That is particularly true in a place of, uh, that anciently was called Avaris. Today it's known as Tel el-Dava. Um, right here on, uh, as you first come into the Nile Valley from, uh, from Canaan. 
And it was actually a place that had been started, it's ruled by a group known as the Pixos. They were actually Semitic people. From uh, Initially they started in kind of the Syria area, but then right before, uh, or probably around Abraham's day, it's a group of people from southern Canaan that come in and, and live with them. They're Semitic people, so in a way related to Abraham. They started out as, it, it was a trading port, and that's why they're on that branch of the Nile, the first one you come to if you're coming down the Mediterranean coast. Um, and they, um, they become so powerful economically that eventually they'll actually take over the entire country. But at this time period, they would just be ruling part of the country, and it would be the part of the country that Abraham would come to first. So I would guess, I don't know, but I think there's a decent chance that when Abraham comes into Egypt, this is the pharaoh that he interacts with, the Semitic pharaoh, not the same pharaoh that would have been upset that Abraham was uh, nearly, uh, or that Abraham, his priest was killed by Abraham when Abraham was nearly killed, uh, or nearly sacrificed. This would be a different pharaoh who would have kinder feelings towards Semitic people like Abraham. I suspect that's who Abraham's interacting with, but we, but we really don't know. But I, I probably, right as he comes in, it would have been right around here, um, when he comes in, that, that's probably the group that he's interacting with. We don't know. Um, so what did he teach, and, and when did he teach it? Well, uh, he, he's teaching them, I believe, gospel principles using astronomy as the object lesson. And as I said, we'll talk about that more in depth on Friday. And what I mean by when did he teach it? Most likely, he's teaching this while Sarah is in Pharaoh's harem. Right, Pharaoh does marry Sarah, uh, but then after a while he gives Sarah back to Abraham and gives Abraham a lot of gifts to say, sorry, I didn't realize she was your wife. Here's some gifts to make up for it. Now you should go. And that's why I think it's got to be somewhere in between there is when he's teaching. I, I don't know if we've ever thought about this. Abraham is teaching the gospel to someone who he probably has some personal issues with. Uh, but God has asked him to do it, and so he's doing it. I can't imagine what it would be like to sit in Pharaoh's court and to patiently teach him the gospel and try to bring him to Jehovah while you know that he's just married your wife. Uh, but Abraham goes through with it. Bless his heart and, and uh, we're grateful for uh, his willingness to follow God and, and serve him. Eventually, as I said, uh, in fact, in, in the Bible, I don't have the whole story in the Bible, we get a little bit more in the book of Abraham, but uh, the point in the story in, in the Bible seems to be that uh, Abraham becomes very wealthy because of all the gifts that Pharaoh gives him to make up for having married his wife. So, uh, and, and there are all sorts of traditions about this as well, uh, and most of those traditions say that every time Pharaoh tried to consummate the marriage, something really bad happened to him that made it so he couldn't, and eventually he figured out there's something going on here, and that's when he found out that, uh, that Sarah was not only his sister, but his wife. So. That's kind of a fun story, but in any case, Abraham will then come back uh, up into Canaan and keep going along this kind of route between Shechem and Beersheba, all right? So now we have to ask ourselves, what was life like for Abraham among the Canaanites? Remember, he's a foreigner. He, he's nomadic, and, and I don't think that we think about that shift very often. He has lived his life uh, as an urban dweller. And he suddenly will become a nomad. He's lived in houses his whole life, but now he's going to spend the rest of his life in tents. He's going to keep moving. He's going to take care of flocks uh, and not really have a home that is his home. What's more, he's among foreigners that are large and powerful groups, and he is not one of them. And you, as you read the Bible story, you can tell he's treading carefully quite often. 
Uh, he, when he wants some land, people want to give it to him. He wants no chance that at any point this could go wrong. So he says, no, I'm going to buy it. He gets lots of witnesses to make sure everyone knows he's, he's purchased this land. He's treading very, very carefully among these Canaanites um, because if, if he makes them upset, they have the ability to wipe them out. Uh, and that would not be an uncommon thing to have happen in that place and time. And so that's, that's a bit of a stressful thing that Abraham is going through during all of that. Uh, his, his grandson Jacob would call himself a wandering Aramean. Aramean means Assyrian. Uh, not Assyrian, but Syrian, like from Syria. Uh, that's how we translate, or uh, Aramaic, we translate into Syria. All right? So he calls himself a wandering Aramean. Abraham was a wandering Aramean every bit as much as Jacob was, maybe more, because he's the one that first came down into the land. You, you get this feeling that they feel like foreigners, right? They're resident aliens, only not fully resident because they are nomadic. Uh, that's, that's some difficult stuff that he's asked to go through. Um, now, these towns that, that I've got on here, Shechem and Bethel and Salem, which is uh, the Jerusalem area, that's where he would have met Melchizedek, and Hebron and Beersheba are the towns and the regions that, that are most often noted that Abraham being in. Uh, and of course it's seasonal, they've got flocks, and so they are down south when it's, it's uh, cold up here, and this is when they can get some grazing land here, and then as it gets too hot here and there's no grazing land, they'll move up north and take advantage of the cooler temperatures and the grazing that's up there. Um, but this area is the area that's still, by the, the king who's in the center of Egypt, he still uh, has lots of influence in that area. You remember, I have the, the map, right? Uh, and so that's this bunch of red dots right here, um, because that's where all the key trade routes are. So that area uh, is, is where the Egyptians are, and this is where Abraham spends most of his time. He spends over north a little bit. Um, he doesn't ever go up to Megiddo, which is where the strongest Egyptian presence is. Uh, but he spends most of his time in this area, when this is the area where the Egyptians have the most control. And I would guess that's not coincidence. Right. While Abraham had a fairly good experience with one pharaoh, he's probably somewhat cautious of a lot of Egyptian influence. They have tried to kill him before, but what's more, he knows of the, the seductiveness of their idolatrous religion. And my guess would be that he, and we could say this is probably true of Isaac and uh, Rebecca and their children, and uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Billah and their children, that they are a little bit leery of having their family have too much contact with the Egyptians for a couple of reasons. The, the, the Egyptian, the religious influence, I think, would be difficult. The Egyptians still sometimes go on raids uh, and just take what they want. And uh, of course, they don't want to get involved in that. Um, and uh, as we said, at one point, they were trying to kill Abraham. Uh, but they probably can't completely avoid them because if they are trying to live off of their flocks, that means they have to do some trading with some people. And the Egyptians control the trade routes and are the people with the most goods for them to do trading with. Now, I don't know. It's possible that uh, Abraham knew some of the Canaanites with whom he had become friends as intermediaries. He sold them his flocks and sold it to the Egyptians. Uh, maybe that sometimes he had had influence with the Egyptians. Uh, we, we really don't know how that worked and what happened there. But uh, my guess would be that Abraham was often doing a little bit of a dance uh, around, and so would have been uh, Isaac, Rebecca. So Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob, and 
me and Rachel, Silva, and Bilbao were probably doing a bit of a dance around what was going on with the Egyptians. And they probably could hear, oh, the, there's a, an Egyptian uh, battalion coming through. Let's, let's go move to another area right now. Let's not be anywhere close. Uh, that's the kind of thing they probably had to keep track of and, and figure out what was going on. Uh, we have a few minutes to address some other questions, about five minutes. So we should ask ourselves, what did Abraham write? Well, obviously the book of Abraham, um, but there's very clear evidence that he wrote more than what we had. Joseph Smith talks about wanting to publish more of the book of Abraham, he just didn't get around to it. So he wrote more than what we had, and I wish we had that. Um, but he, he, he gave us at least those writings for which I'm very grateful. We have to ask the question, when did he write it? Uh, obviously, at least sometime after coming back from Egypt, because he's got the story of going to Egypt in there. Um, so it's got to be sometime while he's during that, uh, that period of Canaan. Uh, it may have been before the birth of Isaac. We don't have mention of that, but that may be because that's in the part that Joseph Smith didn't get published. Uh, in the end, I don't know. Uh, but at some time in that period. Um, and I also have to ask the question, what was it like? Did Abraham have pictures in his drawing? If so, they probably looked different. Uh, I think that the, the version of pictures we have were created around 300 BC. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, by an Egyptian priest, was he copying? pictures that Abraham had drawn, but he drew it, Abraham may have drawn it in a Chaldean style, and the priest draws it in an Egyptian style, just like I showed you facts only one, and then a modern version of that picture, right? We just take other art and we draw it in the way we're used to drawing it. Uh, did it have no pictures at all? In the end, we don't know. Uh, but, but possibly it had pictures. Um, and then we have to ask the question, since uh, it was found in Egypt, the copy of the book of Abraham that, that uh, we have is at least in some way associated with some papyri that were found in Egypt. When did those writings get to Egypt? Because Abraham didn't write them while he was in Egypt. Or if he did, he, he didn't finish it. He still had them with him when he left because he's writing about that story afterwards. So when did they get to Egypt? Uh, so it could have been when his grandchildren, grandchild, and great-grandchildren went, right? So this is the route that we, we have. This is uh, uh, Jacob's sons that go up here taking care of uh, uh, their flocks, and then Joseph comes and meets them, and then Joseph is sold by a caravan and comes down into Egypt. Right? Uh, which, by the way, if we know if their caravan's taking uh, human traffic from down into Egypt, that's something else that Abraham and his family were probably a little worried about, right? Uh, so it may have come down then, or when Jacob goes down with them, uh, and then with them, you know, they go all the way from here to Egypt. may have been in Egypt ever since then, or maybe not. Uh, maybe it came because they come back out, right? This is the Exodus route, or a proposed Exodus route into the Promised Land. Um, so were there other movements to Egypt? And yes, there were. There were lots of small movements. So for example, you remember Jeroboam. He's the one who will become king of the northern ten tribes. Uh, well, he sought refuge in Egypt. He was in Egypt for a while. There were lots of other people who moved down to Egypt for one reason or another. There were also some big movements at the time of the exile when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. A big group of Jews moved down to Egypt. Jeremiah was one of them. Uh, Jeremiah didn't want to go, but they picked him up and took him with them anyway. Jeremiah dies in Egypt along with a large group of Jews, and they became a pretty serious colony of Jews in, in Egypt for quite a while. And then other Jews kept moving down. Uh, again and again and again, so that there were a lot of Jews in Egypt after a while, enough that they actually built a couple of temples. One of these temples was down at the very southern end of Egypt, on the island of Elephantine, um, and it, it functioned for quite a while. This was a Jewish temple, modeled after the, tem the Temple of Solomon, 
Uh, but then they had some uh, run-ins with some Egyptian priests at a nearby temple, and, and this temple was destroyed, and they had to move. Um, and so around the, the time that the Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith ends up owning were created, we know these are the areas of the greatest concentration of Jews. Um, there were some in Edfu, uh, at Thebes, and, and in the Fayum. They'd moved out of that southern area because of the persecution, and that's where they had gone. And they've been in different places already. Now that's interesting because it is in Thebes that uh, the papyri associated with the Book of Abraham will be found. Um, so, uh, and uh, we have some articles associated with that. Uh, and here's the site that I'm going to All the stuff is, uh, we'll get into next time. That's all just my teaser for coming tomorrow. Um, and I should get a teaser right after this, by the way. We're going to talk about how to understand Isaiah. So there's my, my teaser for staying to understand Isaiah, which we'll be covering in, in uh, Come Follow Me in a few weeks. Um, but what I want to leave you with is, is this thought, that uh, I am impressed with Abraham's dedication to the Lord. After all that we've just described, I, I think, and talked about with Abraham's life, certainly he had a lot of joy in, in his marriage with Sarah and the souls that he had converted in worshiping the Lord and the eventual birth of their son Isaac. He also had a lot of heartache. All the heartache we've talked about, we didn't even get into the heartache with Ishmael and Hagar and so on. Uh, if I were going to describe Abraham's life, I'd say, well, it started out hard and then it got tough and then it was hard after that. Um, Abraham was willing, he was faithful to the Lord despite a tremendous amount of trials. Despite following God's will and time and time again having it seem like everything was falling apart because he was following God's will. He was following God's will so he's really sacrificed. Uh, and he's estranged from his family. He's following God's will, and so he comes down to a, a promised land, and there's famine. He's following God's will, so he goes to Egypt, and, and he loses his wife. Uh, he's following God's will, and he loses uh, his son Ishmael. Following God's will, and he's going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Uh, and he has, uh, he's become a uh, uh, nomad, and so on and so on, right? Uh, in all of those cases, eventually, God took care of him. But initially, it, was, it probably always looked like this isn't going how it should. And through all of that, Abraham was incredibly faithful and loved God and kept the covenant that God established with him and eventually received all the blessings of the covenant so that we read in the Doctrine and Covenants, at least when uh, section 132 is received, God tells Joseph Smith that Abraham is already exalted. That is a wonderful example for us to follow. And I hope that we can keep our covenant and follow God and come to Christ the way that Abraham did. And it's my prayer that we will do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.